the Episcopal Church has had a prayer, a collect, we call it, that we say to open the Mass. Uh, in every prayer book since we've become a, a, our own church, since 1789, and the prayer that I prayed uh, to begin the liturgy <clears throat> is a slightly reworked version of the one that appeared in the original 1789 book, and the person who did the reworking is one of Father Emerson's former teachers, Massey Shepherd, who wrote that uh, prayer and redid it for the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. So we have three readings today, one from Joel, one from 1 Timothy, and one from the Gospel. And the three questions they deliver up to us are, what is the nature of the thanksgiving we celebrate, and then what is the context that we have thankful hearts? What are the dangers of a complacent understanding of thanksgiving? And how do we remain, maintain the non-anxious presence in the face of uncertainty about our material well-being? So, the reading from Joel, one of the minor prophets. I've got a lot out recently of reading from the Jewish Study Bible. The Jewish Publication Society uh, produces an English translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, the nice thing about reading it in that version is uh, you see how the people of the covenant have translated their sacred scriptures into English. But you also, in the introductory material, just like in our Bible, in the New Revised Standard Version, if you have an annotated version, uh, talk about all of the, the issues about the scholarship and the history and the sources and the origins and so in the Jewish study Bible, they're not as, as reluctant as they have been in some Christian translations to be very, uh, out, very forthcoming about the varieties of opinions that are held about the book. And so there are many theories about the source of Joel, but being a conservative biblically in the main myself, I hold with those who they describe who believe that Joel is a unity. It had one writer and was produced uh, probably during the time uh, just prior to the exile to, in Babylon. But here's the thing. Uh, we have read from Joel today speaking about God's redemptive work in some ways, and he describes the locusts and the cutters and all of that sort of business. And if somebody who re first read that way back when... Uh, they might think that locusts have something to do with all of the armies that have come through Judah and chewed the country up and chewed the people up and how God somehow and God's saving work has now brought to the people some species of peace, some species of abundance, and some species of abiding care. And so on Thanksgiving Day, it might be good to see that Thanksgiving has something to do with uh, the sure knowledge of God's abundance. Now and before and always. And so the perceived sense of lack or the ability to understand how we emerge from 
uh, challenges and difficulties. We're in the middle of one again in the world uh, that we need to know that God's redemptive work is at work. And the big issue that Joel is driving at and does elsewhere in his book is the idea that we must cooperate with these things. You know, there's a paradox. We believe in God's sovereignty and we believe in God's omnipotence and we believe in God's omniscience. But somehow, even as the result of that, the God, the, the God that made the world and called it good in some way um, requires us to respond. So God wishes us to be in a peaceful condition, but we must cooperate with that peaceful condition. And we must somehow be people of peace and people who know that God's abundant care is available to us. And that's what we get from this reading. In the reading from 1 Timothy, uh, here is the situation on the ground. There are three things that are operating here. All of them involve what my grandmother used to say to me in hushed tones. Dear, there was tension. <laughs> and in my grandmother's world, boy, you didn't want tension. The first thing that is being contended with is that the early Christian community, the Pauline churches, are facing uh, social ostracism in the Roman Empire. The people who've made their decision to accept Jesus as the Messiah, to now move forward and to be willing to commend their greatest place of safety and assurance to other people, are uh, uh, experiencing social ostracism, not always the extreme martyrdom or punishment, but just merely being excluded, maybe from the places that they had been comfortable uh, be being around. Hostility from the Roman government, from uh, the Roman Empire. They have internal difficulties and squabbles about what constitutes faithful teaching and practice. So there's some version in, in the, the, the uh, First Timothy world of what Episcopalians experience as the seven last words for us. We've never done it that way before. Right? So they're having some disagreements with one another. And in the, in the letter, we're getting some advice about the necessity to go along to get, get along to go along, or go along to get along, however you say that, and what it is that we need to do. So Paul is speaking about the need to uh, and the desire to live a peaceful life. You know, most of us want to do that. We want to live a peaceful life, and he's also aware of the fact that when we seek this, we find ourselves often in a place of complacency. My mother once said to me that ruts are comfortable. Do you believe that? You know? And most of us 
like the ruts that we're in, or we don't want to move out of them because then what does that mean? It means change, it means adapting, it means somehow uh, doing things. And Paul is concerned, or whoever wrote Timothy, is concerned about the fact that uh, we don't lose our prophetic edge. So the church has for a long time always lived in that tension. Because the promises of God are that uh, God's abundance knows no limit. God wants for each of us to live a peaceful life. And God also wants us to be faithful. And sometimes being faithful is not easy because you may be in a situation where you've got to speak the truth sometimes and that's not comfortable. Or you might be in a position where you have to say, I'm all in, and as the consequence of being all in, here's what might attach to doing that. You know, here's what I might have to give up. Now, this is one of my favorite gospels from Matthew. My grandfather used to quote this passage. Consider the lilies of the field, how they toil not, neither do they spin. Yet Solomon, arrayed in all of his glory, was not like one of these. That's, I think, a loose quote from the old, the authorized version, which is what I know by memory, right? The King James, or as one woman at Tucson, Arizona, came out the door and said to me, the St. James Bible. <laughs> right? She's also the same person who said, Father Brewer, if our Lord knew what you were doing to his prayer book, he would turn over in his grave. <laughs> Herb Cain, the columnist in San Francisco for many years, would refer to that as unclear on the concept. Yeah. Right? So here's Jesus speaking about how we understand the idea of being non-anxious. People spend a lot of time worrying about their stuff and whether or not it's in order. You know, all of us are called as good stewards of the things we have to have our stuff in order. We're supposed to do that. And we're to labor to do it in some ways even if it doesn't particularly appeal to us to have to pay attention to those things. When I was a kid, this dates me, the first of the baby boom, but I was raised on depression stories, stories of the Great Depression. My grandfather used to say, well, we did that. We were in the depths of the Depression. That's what he would say, the depths of the Depression. I always thought to myself, what must that have been like? Our store was on 43 O'Farrell Street, right next to the city of Paris. Those of you who've been around for a while know what the, where the city of Paris was. And Paul Verdier, who owned the city of Paris, hadn't paid his rent on that big building for six months. And my grandfather was struggling to pay the rent on the building that he was in, in the store, and he was just having a terrible time. And uh, he found out from Verdier that he hadn't, done, he hadn't been paying his rent. 
So he went to his landlord and he said, you've got to give me a break here. I'm not able to pay my rent and I need to do it. So he did. That was the situation we were in. Well, two things occur. One is that if you have that experience, you know what it's like when the bottom falls out. And you can decide to live your life always operating on the basis of scarcity and that that might happen again and needing to be prepared. But there was another thing that, w that, that I heard also from him and from many of his friends, my parents' contemporaries. You know, we didn't have anything, but somehow we managed. And as we look back on it, we were happy. And as we look back on it, we were happy. So maybe it has something to do with understanding the circumstances that you're in, you know. Some, sometimes I think we poison ourselves because of our inability to see when is the time when you should express gratitude. Only when life is overflowing with blessings and you have a little spring in your step And maybe gratitude is the thing you do as part of uh, what they call in the classical spiritual life, habitual recollection, an attitude of gratitude. I was watching a show, television show last night and the guy, one of the characters in it said, no, I'm not going to express my feelings about this. I'm just going to let this resentment, I'm an English person, I'm just going to let it gather around like a little ball and get hard and be there for the rest of my life. <laughs> Do you know anybody like that? You know? able at the drop of a hat to tell you about what every insult and difficulty that you have been subjected to, how the forces of the world are arrayed against you in such a way as to have prevented you from being who you should be. So Jesus is saying, you know what? We need to have some gratitude for the fact that the natural order, the way things are, is something we should be grateful for because if God is looking out for the lilies of the field, which sometime now are going to die and they're going to have to be gathered up and burned, think about how many times how, how God thinks about you. And you know it's at the center of our self-understanding as Episcopalians that God loves, accepts, and forgives us unconditionally. And the liberating feeling that that produces in the individual is uh, enormous when we touch it and we understand it. Because it has two benefits. One is to allow us to have some species of internal serenity with regard to our emotional, emotional spiritual, and mental states. And the other one is that it allows us to be the transparency and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be. So Thanksgiving has a twofold thing, for me anyway. One is to give thanks to God for who you are, beloved of God, special. Everybody is special in God's eyes. 
and give thanks for the opportunity to be of service in some way. You hear me say this all the time. Most people have the idea that uh, being of service or reaching out or being compassionate always needs to be heroic. That we need to be doing this in terribly heroic ways all the time. And you know, most of us become sanctified by the ordinary and the commonplace, the quotidian activities that we engage in. And so that's what we're called to be. So as you continue, uh, give thanks for God's abundance. Give thanks for the opportunities to uh, be of service in big and small ways. Remember, what we're doing right now and just about to do is to celebrate the Eucharist. And in Greek, that word means thanksgiving. So every Sunday is the Sunday we celebrate a thanksgiving to God, you know. It's not because we wish to inure ourselves against the possibility of no post-mortem bliss. We do this because we love God and we're thanking God, not because we want to get anything from it. Sometimes the Protestant reformers misunderstood that in the 16th century. We're doing this because we love God and we're thanking God. Amen.